Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hey everybody, so this is Corner Table Talk and welcome. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. If you have questions or comments about our show, you can always reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So culture is defined by Webster as the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. It also goes on to say the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversions or a way of life, shared by people in a place or time. Hmm. Synthesis is defined as something that is made by combining different things, such as ideas, styles, etc. We will take a little journey today with a guide whose life and influence is a vision of these words realized. If that sounds a little like mental gymnastics, I'll borrow a quote from my guest today, Fab Five Freddy, that appeared in an article about him and his growing influence in an issue of The New Yorker from 1991, written by longtime New Yorker journalist Susan Orlean. Picking up as Fab was leaving dinner at the Plaza Hotel, that's a nice image that uh, he's standing at the top of the stairs, so it goes on to say, a horse carriage and cab were double parked at the bottom of the stairs going down to the street. Freddie posed at the top and lit a cigarette. He was wearing his sunglasses and a big tan hat. Backlit by the plaza chandeliers, he formed an imposing silhouette. Freddie says, quote, this black pop life shit can get hectic sometimes. It's cool most of the time, but it can be hectic every now and again. To be honest with you, I'm like, damn. Fred Brathwaite, PKA Fab Five Freddy, emerged in the late 1970s as a New York City graffiti artist who was one of the first to exhibit his paintings internationally. Keith Haring, Lee Kionis, and Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol were close friends and major influences in his life. A bit of an understatement, but fair to say Fab was a key player in the New York 1980s downtown cultural scene. Born in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn, New York, his introduction to pop culture came courtesy of a name check on Blondie's 1980s pop hit, Rapture. That's pretty well known at this point. Hmm. In addition to his visual art, Fab co-produced, starred in, and composed the music for the cult classic film Wild Style, which I just rewatched, <laughs> and it is incredible. His uh -huh. charisma is instantaneously <laughs> visible, the first scene. It's great. And then from the late 1980s into the mid-1990s, he was the original host of Yo! MTV Raps, the groundbreaking TV show that took hip-hop culture global. And uh, that was a show that uh, you, you did not want to miss. And I watched a bunch of those old ones, Dre, Snoop. No, I mean, yeah. it was, it's, it's, a, it's just a great trip down memory lane. Yeah. He, he produced and directed a feature-length documentary for Netflix titled Grass is Greener that examines the history of cannabis, music, and criminal justice in America. And Be Noble, his social equity cannabis brand, is now available in eight states. We have a lot to talk about. So here we go with Fab Five Freddy. Fab, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Oh, man. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. Thanks for that illustrious uh, introduction. <laughs> and it's great to be with you once again. My brother. my brother yes good yes, to have yes. you and and thanks to uh rudy langless man for the illustrious producer the yeah. film producer and and publisher i mean rudy is just incredible rudy hooked us up man and yes, uh, i'm did. grateful for that 
the brilliant raconteur, Rudy Langlis. <laughs> yeah. So, so Freddie, I use a little restaurant terminology as I kick things off. We start with it. short order questions. So let me fire a few of these at you and get your, uh, get your reaction. Hey, I'm ready. I'm at the corner table. I got my napkin on my lap. I'm ready, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to these days? What I'm listening to these days among many songs from many genres based on the ability of the technology, we could hear practically any song ever made, but some young cats out of South Africa uh, right now are creating some really exciting music. It's like, I guess, I mean, I don't even know if it has a name, but uh, Musa Keys, there's young cats from South Africa, Musa Keys is an amazing artist uh, with this song, Vula Olmo. Mm -hmm. which is just an exciting one and many other songs in that genre. You know, when you play a song on Spotify, what comes up after is a lot of other things in that genre. So that's been pretty exciting. People go crazy when I play the song for them. It's a good, it's a vibe. <laughs> that's awesome, man. And yeah. you know, for us music heads, I mean, you're way deeper in it than me, but the, between Shazam and Spotify, yes. I'm like, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> me too, man. I Shazam like crazy. <laughs> And what's cool, I noticed on Spotify, there's a Shazam playlist from everything you Shazam. So you can revisit those moments. And it's reassuring that you're that instinct where you'd be like, wait, I love that. What is that? To find out that it's all there on a playlist when I'm riding around, I can just revisit and listen in. So Yeah, man. From the days when we used to have to catch the tune on the radio and hold oh, the mic next to the... Oh, man. Yes. Remember. Get what the, was try that? to not get the commercial. Yeah. Or what about going into a record store, trying to describe a record you don't know the name of, and a, and a good record store person, and they would help you figure it out. Yeah. They wouldn't even say anything. They'd just walk you over to the rack. Yes. Those were the yep. days. Yeah. All right, man. So um, what's your morning routine, Fab? Ah, my morning routine is, um, well, you know, along with breakfast, I'll typically check messages, um, things on my phone, things going on, kind of get my day lined up, kind of run through a, uh, a kind of a list of list, so to speak. The summer breakfast was a smoothie bunch of with my, um, with my sea moss and my, and my, and my, uh, and my black seed oil and my other stuff. But now we're switching that over to oatmeal as it gets a little colder in New York. So I'm throwing all that stuff in some good uh, hearty oatmeal. And uh, yeah, man, that's pretty much how I get my day going, you know? Good for you, man. That's a good start. So tell me, man, what is your preferred footwear of choice these days? What's on your feet? Wow. Comfort is first and foremost, all birds. Um, I had a, a few pairs of those when they first came out. My friends up in Silicon Valley were all rocking them. And I literally put them on and felt like I was walking around barefoot, kind of sort of very light and very comfortable. And so comfort more than anything. I've got a couple of Nike running shoes. Can't remember the name of the particular ones I like, but light and comfortable is, uh, is essential at this point in the game. Yeah, man, I'm with you there. Yeah. So this may be a tough one for you, Fab. Best live musical performance you've ever seen? I'd say, without giving it a great deal of thought, I've seen a lot of great live music. When I think of a top 10, Prince is probably three or four. 
um, those incredible moments when, and not even so much the big stage concerts, if you were blessed to go to his after concerts, if you will, they'd be just sublime. Like this guy would just, he would finish a big gig, let's say at Madison Square Garden, I can remember the little red Corvette, and then he'd come to a place like Nell's, pull up in Nell's 1.32 in the morning and be at the piano with maybe Sheila E and a couple of people accompanying him until four in the morning, telling people, keep talking, act like I'm just the piano guy. And just such generous musical moments from such a master just literally left, left me like numb with excitement and enjoyment many times. So Prince is uh, high on the list. Yeah, man, that's that's beautiful imagery. And we're going to dip back into Nell's in a little bit. So uh, uh, yeah. yeah, pause mm -hmm. on that thought. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So tell me, man, what restaurant do you frequent most often in New York City? Well, haha. As we kind of ease out of the pandemic in New York, the place that was hit the hardest initially, all my dining switched over to those apps which allowed food to be delivered when i wasn't cooking i can get busy in the kitchen thankfully but um these 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 food apps you know i have a whole array of them seamless grubhub caviar uber eats and uh, there's a place in harlem uh uh called ponte bistro some african brothers um trained in europe so it's pretty much an I don't know, how do you call it, like a, a cosmopolitan, e eclectic, Eurocentric Afro, if you will, if that's, <laughs> if that makes sense. And they basically, everything that I've had on the menu is incredibly cooked, well-seasoned, uh, presented. I mean, you know, they make a lamb burger that I order. That's my, you know, maybe once every two weeks, I get a lamb burger. I've been off of beef uh, uh, largely and lamb um and uh, just delicious great fries you know like really good fries if you know what i mean um and just an amazing place that i've enjoyed consistently time and time again um there's another place that makes some amazing ramen gin ramen which i don't know if they got a michelin star but they seem to have been acknowledged and uh i've ordered from them quite a bit lately super good i'm not completely surprised but still a little bit thrown that i knew you could stump me on the playlist but i didn't think you would get me on restaurants and you came up with two man i've never heard of so i'm making notes as we speak yeah you, you know i think i think it's an interesting harlem over the i've been in harlem about 20 years now in the last 10 there's been a plethora of new restaurants that have opened uptown i guess primarily because it's a lot cheaper a lot more affordable to and i'm a kind of a guy and this happened this started with me a long time ago I'll, I'll tell you more about this story later but when the food is really great for me i ask my waiter is the chef in the kitchen and if they are i just want to thank them for an incredible meal um and then i'll ask some, some a few questions hey how long you been doing it and several times i've done that in harlem and the chefs have uh, oftentimes, you know, Mexican and other ethnicities, but they've worked their way up from doing all the other jobs that you know happen in the kitchen. And they figure out, they eventually learn how to really cook under the, the head chefs that they work under. And when they're ready to start a business, it's much more affordable to do now uptown in Harlem 
you know, where rents and everything else is a bit cheaper so they can get something started. So I've noticed that a bit up in the neighborhood um, on the culinary tip. When I first moved to Harlem, you really couldn't get more than some soul food, some Jamaican or some Chinese literally. And now we have a whole plethora of, uh, of the food spectrum in Harlem, which is great. Yeah, no question, man. Harlem has become a really exciting, dynamic play. It always has been. It, you know, it's had yes. some slumps, but man, has it come back? And it's it's a beautiful spot now, man, to, to hang out and do a bunch of different interesting things. Yeah. So, Fab, I, know, I I get the impression that that you're always on the go and that you always work. But do you have a favorite vacation destination? Not a favorite. Just you know, vacations for me. I've been blessed with the work that I do. I've gotten to travel the world. And when I'm in like a vacation type destination, I'll then uh, extend my trip on my own dime. And uh, cause I got the, I got the other end of the ticket just cause I'm like, Hey, I want to dig into this place. You know, the work is done. I want to see a little more, but I guess recently I got to go to Barbados where grandparents on both side of my family originated from both of my parents were born in Brooklyn, but I would go to Barbados with family that was alive at the time and I was a lot younger. And so they were very poor, but I had a great, great memorable experiences as a kid in Barbados. But now I got back and I was the guest of the tourist board. When they found out that I had Bajan roots, they said, well, wait a minute, let's, let's figure something out. They were very cleverly invited me down, brought my daughter, a young cousin, and uh, they rolled out the red carpet, a spectacular trip where I got to now really see Barbados almost for the first time. I got to the island, under, learn about the culture, see the museum. It was just an overwhelming trip. I've spent a lot of time in Jamaica, particularly through the time when I hosted your MTV Raps because we covered the dance hall scene quite aggressively as well as covering hip hop. So I know the island of Jamaica from one end to the other, but going to Barbados is now my new vacation destination. They've even made, they've even let me know that I can get citizenship once I confirm my lineage there. They're making it really accessible, if you will, or possible for me to Barbados, practically a second home. Mia Motley is the prime minister. And if you guys don't know anything about this woman, please take a minute and just Google her. Anything she has to say is amazing. She's literally this crown jewel in the Caribbean and a real, a true progressive, brilliant woman. And so she was kind of indirectly responsible for this amazing trip and what the island is doing now. Some really advanced things. Man, I love it. And uh, I visited Barbados back in the 80s, man, and it was bre just breathtakingly beautiful. So when you're ready to open that little juice bar on the beach, man, call a brother and, you know, I'll, I'll help you out there. Oh, man. <laughs> Barbados. Yes, I'm with it. Yes, yes, for real, for real. <laughs> so last one of these, Fab, who passed or present, someone who's still with us or has passed on, would you mm -hmm. most like to host at an intimate dinner party? You know, I would love to be able to sit with Paul Robeson a giant in American history. Sadly, um, he was sort of, I hate to use the term blacklisted, but he was sort of wiped out of history intentionally. I mean, a great American in every sense of the word that did so many great things in the arts, in culture, in politics, in writing, an amazing voice. And, uh, you know, he was a Harlem resident and I've, I've, I've been pointed out, you know, places where he lived and 
I've seen his films. My dad, I can remember, there's a radio station that was ubiquitous in my house coming up. WBAI, like a kind of an activist, progressive station. There's a sister station, I think in LA, in San Francisco, and it would be on often. My dad was very connected to things going on in this in the streets in the world particularly affecting people that had been disadvantaged around the world and wbai was a place and they i remember them doing huge tributes to paul robeson over hours on end where you'd hear him talking and speaking and my dad and his friends would be so excited and i'd be like who are they who is this guy and then as i got a little older i would you know see his films and probably the greatest rendition of Shakespeare's Othello ever done was Paul Robeson. Um, just so many great things. It would be great to sit down at the table with him and chop it up and ask some questions. Yeah, man. Wow. I'm right now I'm visualizing that as you're saying it, man. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about your dad and the, and the crew that he hung out with back in uh, the day, because I know that that was an influential crowd, but, uh, so before I do, let's let's move into some questions here. How you doing, man? First and foremost, you look great. Everything cool? Thank you, Brad. Yes, I'm really good. I'm in Seattle right now. Um, there's a history of hip hop photo exhibit called Contact High. That's a play on the word uh, on the contact sheet with professional photographers would get to pick that what they would want to have printed. And it's also a play on, on, uh, on secondary cannabis smoke, which is known to induce a contact high. Um, so that's opening at the M Mopop Museum, formerly the Experience Music Project that Paul Allen funded. Amazing Frank Gehry building that I've just spent the, um, the morning in doing some advanced press. The show opens this Saturday. And once again, it's the first ever history of hip hop photography. A woman by the name of Vicky Toback had a uh, passionate about hip hop woman worked for some labels and some small, you know, PR around hip hop in the nineties. And uh, she got the brilliant idea some years ago, not, not many, about six, seven years ago to find the photographers that had took iconic hip hop photography and get them to go into their archives and pull out the, the contact sheet and then interview them about when this photo of Biggie was taken, when this Tupac shot and so many other moments that were the defining images oftentimes for luminaries in hip hop from the beginning until now. And she would publish it in this um, mass appeal online magazine. And I really connected with her through that because there were some sessions with me in the photos that I had never seen. I knew the photographers, one or two shots that might have made it into the Source magazine or whatever the case may be. Here's all these other photos, which was really exciting. And she, we, it was a no brainer that that would then become a book. And that book has become a big exhibit, which has now traveled four times. It's, it's first started in 2019 at the Annenberg Space for Photography in LA. Then it went to the new building of the ICE Center Photography in New York. Um, the pandemic shut that down. It traveled to Abu Dhabi, which we got to go over and check the last week of that once the COVID protocols allowed us to travel. And now here at the uh, Mopop Museum, and it's it feels like a show that can continue to travel for a very long time because it shows you the whole history of hip hop, the contact sheets for a lot of great shoots, and it's a lot of programming can be put together with talks and films and things like that that could illuminate. You know, 
people under 30 pretty much have grown up in a digital existence with photos. We all have a high definition camera on our phones. And uh, this is how it used to be done, as we know so well, like it was analog, baby, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, I want to I want to touch on some of that when I come to that point, uh, Fab, because I know that the Schomburg uh, took a, a trove of all of your collections, multimedia collections, and and is yes. is holding a, a bunch of that stuff at the Schomburg. Yeah. And you had the foresight, you know, to film so much stuff when people weren't walking around with camera phones. But before before I get to that, I want to go back to um, the Plaza Hotel mm. and the Edwardian Restaurant for a the moment. Edwardian Room, oh boy, right? Yes, and that was a moment. Kerry mm. Simon was the chef. God ah, rest his soul, rest great guy. Yes, he yep. was. Kerry, fantastic That's how we man. And the, I was good friends with him through his success in Vegas. Oh man, sad that we yeah, lost Kerry. Yeah, he Way too great soon. guy, man. I, I loved his places and loved his vibe. So yes. you're you're joking around with a buddy of yours there, and you had had an interesting dish. So you turn to him and you say, "Yo, man, picture a fine squid ink risotto in bed sty." Now that was 1991. You yes, think there was. might be a a, a fine squid ink risotto in bed sty now? You know that's incredible, Brad, because bed sty. As you know, it's been gentrified. That's not as bad a thing as it sometimes sounds. Mm -hmm. The black folks and anybody that's still living there, the new folks, the old folks, we now can find dine. And that's one of the things we've got some great restaurants that are open in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood where I was, I like to say, born, bred, and collard green fed. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, it's amazing. But I don't know if anybody's cooking up some squid ink risotto, which was that, that, Edwardian room dinner was the first time I had that. I was like, what am I eating? But it was, <laughs> it was really tasty. And that's why, you know, when you go to places that have meals that are that outstanding and the food is good, I take notes. Cause I'm mm -hmm. like, I got to remember this. Now everybody has the camera, they, they'll take photos. That's a big part of the dining experience, whether we like it or not. I know for restaurateurs, they want to get people in and out. But um, yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. <laughs> that was my so first. Squid ink. I'm like, squid ink. <laughs> Probably not the thing you order most often, but I, that that definitely <laughs> jumped out at me. So the yeah. piece fab goes on to talk about your vocabulary, right? This, so this is the New Yorker magazine. For those that don't know, I, I think wow. most of our listeners would know, but you know, yeah. pretty highbrow New York uh, magazine. Yeah, great articles, great writers. So the piece goes on to talk about these words that you were making popular in the day. Words huh. like fly. Huh. Dope yes. and yo. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, it's just crazy because it's oh, such a man. part of our vocabulary. But look, I have to admit, man, you know, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yes. And some of the folks that I hung out with, we had a habit of talking one way amongst our boys and our peers. Yes. And another way, I'll say in, quote, mixed company, right? Yes. yes. But you, like, were cool with like the language that was just that you wanted to use. You made that language just part of your persona. Were you just that self-assured that you were just going to be who you were in any circle? Or did it occur to you that it just worked that way? How, how did that happen for you? That's a good question, Brad. You know, I guess I grew up around this. This is a reflection of the men that I grew up around, particularly my dad and his friends, which were intellectual hipsters in the truest sense of the word. They were young brothers that grew up along with bebop jazz and they were the bebop and a reflection of the bebop musicians, highly in intellectual, primarily 
uh, black men concerned about our condition and situation. So growing up as a kid, I heard my dad and them articulate at a high in, in intellectual level, flavored with like, hey man, and dynamite and this cat and that cat. And as a kid, I remember going, what are they saying? <laughs> but then some words would be like, wait, I know that word. Like we use some of these words like man and you know, cool, but then they would use some words that I didn't realize. And they peppered their discourse with slang or the way they communicated among themselves. And that rubbed off on me to a certain extent. I remember being with Ice-T once, I was having an exhibit at a gallery in Los Angeles and Ice-T, this was early on in his career too. This is back in the, I said mid eighties. And I was talking to some people about my art in a very kind of articulate way. And then I flipped around the Ice-T and it got super ghetto, but <laughs> Ice-T was like shocked. He was like, yo man, do you realize what you just said? And Ice-T did an impersonation of me and it was shocking. Cause I'm like, oh my God, that's me. But I didn't, I don't think about it. It's just like, I, it's almost like I look at it as speaking another language. Like if I, you know, when people are multilingual, but I'm, I guess I'm, I speak in multi-dialects. <laughs> yeah, you do, man. And you do it's it like well. Your, your yeah. And, and, is fantastic. And thank you. Mm -hmm. And another thing that the, in, in the few times that I was able to, to, to write some essays and some few things that I've had published, I became aware that a writer or to capture a person's voice. So I'll make sure that I throw a little flavor in there. That really is me. But at the same time, I could articulate quite well, but I'll throw a little flavor, a little hot sauce on there, you know, <laughs> ling linguistically, if you will. So, yeah. And Sleuth and Arlene, I just want to say that profile, which was done quite a while ago was a great lesson in, in writing for me because I had been interviewed numerous times at that point, all things related to hip hop, all things related to hip hop. And so many journals, I've seen my name butchered every which way and people just mess up facts and get things wrong and just not really care the way the process of the New Yorker functions and Susan Orlean specifically, who knew absolutely nothing about hip hop culture. And so to watch her spend the time and pretty much get it right in terms of painting a picture of me and the world I was in, in the mix of was a great learning moment for me in terms of what writers can really do, journalists when they really are focused on their work. Fab, let me read on that note an excerpt from it because I agree with you. I thought that they just nailed it. And again, we're going back to 91. So a lot has happened obviously since then yeah. and we are gonna move forward, but I was just fascinated by this piece. So let me read a little excerpt from you. Please. An ideal Fab Five Freddy project involves several media and several individuals who represent the high and low ends of artistic endeavor or social standing and whose association would be discordant if they were not harmonized by Freddy. His favorite version of such projects at the moment is the cross-pollination of Black culture with highbrow art. Some months ago, describing a trip he took to Italy, he told me, quote, I wanted to walk by Fellini's house because I really admire his filmmaking. So I took a huge ghetto blaster, put in a run DMC tape. We know we're old putting in a tape yes, and right. walked up and down Fellini Street right yeah. in front of his house, blasting rap music. Yeah. I like the idea of combining the two experiences. So Fab, like I said, I know we're going back, man. Yes. But how did you know that those two worlds could coexist? I just was going to insert myself in this culture, re regardless whether, quote unquote, they got it 
or not. And I felt like, so the, con the, the context around that uh, moment was the first exhibit. So I'm the person that used to do graffiti on the walls and trains in New York as a, as a young, wild adolescent teen. But I decided I wanted to be a visual artist. I used to cut school and hang out in the museums in New York. I don't advocate cutting school, but I spent a lot of time in the Metropolitan Museum. It was like Disneyland for me, from the armor to the Egyptian to the Renaissance to you know abstract expressionism, pop art. I got very comfortable with the idea of being an artist and then kind of um, engineered a way for myself and another brother, Lee Quinones, who was also a super master doing graffiti on trains, to get a gallery show and um, to get our work seen and looked at in a way that nobody really was looking at our work. We were the scourge of New York City. And some of that was, I guess, understandable. But some of us were making beautiful pictures, beautiful images. And we were trying to find another way to kind of support ourselves and live as artists. And I was able to get an exhibit, myself and Lee Quinones at a prestigious gallery in Rome. And the dealer lived on that street via Maguta. And Fellini was his neighbor. And I was like, oh my God, I was aware of his films. I'm in the midst of Rome at a very prestigious gallery. And at the time, it was a boombox type of era. I had to bring the boombox with me. I had to I had the cassettes from some hot hip hop, you know, and I'm walking the streets and definitely walked by. I was wanted to meet Fellini. He was out of town, but I still was blasting that music in Rome. And I uh, love that imagery, man. Yeah, that, that is just so trip. that just so captures you. So fast forward yeah. to 2019. Wow. A New York Times article by Reggie Ogwu says Fab Five Freddy's latest cultural coup, the archive of the future, the personal collection of the original Yo! and TV Raps host who united the worlds of hip hop and art has been acquired by the Schomburg in Harlem. Yeah. So, man, I mean, you, you know, you talk about prescient, man. I mean, you, you know, here you are walking around capturing, documenting these these facets of your life. Yeah. And fast forward 30 years, man. And, and you know, the Schomburg wants your collection. That was incredible. There was a, several hip hop archive or collections, if you will, have been acquired by Cornell University, and including one that I had a lot to do with, do with the archive around hip hop's first film, Wild Style, which I was heavily involved in. And the, that archive was acquired by Cornell. So I was curious about what is this all about? How does this work? And there was a guy that was the broker that brokered a bunch of these deals with a a company, oh man, I can't think of the name of the company right now. It'll come to me in a minute. But Johan was the, the head of the of the company. I'm spazzing on the name. But anyway, he was the guy that understood what these institutions are looking for with archives. He totally understood the hip hop culture and, and uh, um, explained how it all worked. I thought you needed to have all these flyers and paper ephemera, which I never really kept all of that stuff, but I did acquire quite a bit of VHS tapes because Yo! MTV Raps as a filmmaker directed, I directed over 70 videos through that 90s period. Everything was VHS tape. I had a lot of tapes. I had a lot of cassette tapes. And um, Johan um, realized that um, he knew Kevin Young, who was then the director of the Schomburg, I knew the Schomburg well. I knew the history and the legacy of the Schomburg, you know, Langston Hughes and James Baldwin and Malcolm X, like some of these people's papers and writings are in the collection. So I was like, wow. Um, he told me, I learned that the Schomburg was interested, 
the previous administration that ran the Schomburg, they were older uh, black folks for a long time, obviously, and they didn't really connect with hip hop culture. And, and I understand that. Um, but they brought in some new younger cats to run it, primarily Kevin Young, and Kevin totally got it. And uh, when they positioned it as the archive of the future, it made me realize, yeah, what do we have now that represents, now every, the archive of the future will be our hard drives, essentially, because the, the VHS tapes, which I have boxes of, the cassette tapes, the CDs, all of that stuff is obsolete. If you, if you will, and most of it didn't really even last for 20 years. When you think about the duration of the prominence of VHS tape and CDs and things like that. So anyway, it was just an exciting revelation that they were excited, interested, and wanted to jump head because once again, you have major institutions, even the where I'm at here in Seattle, this museum, which was originally the Experience Music Project, funded by Paul Allen, early 2000s, they came to New York and spent big money buying anything and everything, old school hip hop, flyers, outfits, turntables, so that this museum could have a significant collection. Well, they changed it to, as opposed to Experience Music Project, to Mopop, popular culture, essentially, and um, supplemented some of the things in their collection along with the, the hip hop photos. But it was exciting that the work is, as opposed to me thinking it would go to Cornell, it's right in my neighborhood of Harlem and uh, the, the pandemic delayed the digitization process, which mostly happens in real time. So they have plans to exhibit different things I've done, the music videos, and I've got thousands of photos that I would always have a camera with me snapping away um, shooting things. So it's a pretty, pretty interesting, you know, I did have a bunch of notes and notebooks and magazines, a lot of source magazines and vibes and, you know, other little stuff that I kept. And it was just my personal stuff that, you know, when you move from place to place, you kind of cut the stuff that you don't need, but then there's those boxes of this is the stuff, this is my stuff. And I never thought there was any significance to it. Um, because I thought you needed to have all the flyers from all the parties, but no, I guess the things that I did have were significant enough that they thought we want to have this um, for for posterity. So I'm pretty well. Congratulations, man! I mean, I think it's awesome, and just you know, a real testament to your foresight that uh, you know your your stuff would potentially have some value, and if and if to no one else, to yourself, but you kept it all, and yeah. you know, here we are, man. We're, we're going to get to enjoy it, you know in the future. So I know you kind of touched on this, but I did want to revisit it for a minute because I, I wondered if you could just kind of take us in that room. So Max, Ro Max Roach, the legendary jazz drummer, by the way, I went yes. to, to college with his uh, son, Raul. We went to uh, UMass Raul. together. Yes, yes, That's yes. That's my man. Uh, yeah. Like so God, God he's your brother. godfather, was your yes. godfather, right? Yes, he was. And yes. you talk about he and other Brooklyn luminaries who would hang out with your dad highbrow intellectual conversations ensued. So would you pinpoint that as the origin of your acute awareness of and in culture? Did it start there? Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't realize how much of it started there until as I've grown older, there's so many things that revert back that I kind of am molded in the, in the image of a lot of those men, the way they thought and those conversations. Cause they were just, like I said, they were really cool. They were really smart. And they talked about, the th particularly the things they were frustrated about, like how 
they weren't able to do what they wanted to do in America. They wanted to own their own labels. They wanted to control a lot of what went on around their music. There was no way that that was going to happen in the America that they lived in at that time. And so I heard these conversations and these frustrations and I took it all in, how they got treated a lot better over in Europe and all these things kind of added up. And um, it kind of motivated me to put sort of a plan together that I could reach out to some people that would probably be more open. And the key thing with me, once again, inspired by those guys was the idea to reach out to these punk rock new wave people that were making significant noise late 70s um the beginnings of punk rock and it just was a really wild rebellion going on in rock music and um i felt like when i read about these bands in the in the zines and the publications that were really focusing on the on the nucleus of that i felt like these people might uh listen to these ideas that i was developing about graffiti and the or graffiti as art and this new music which didn't even really have a name bubbling in the bronx and harlem that we now know of as hip-hop i felt it was all one thing similar rebellious energy to punk rock and new wave and the whole idea of thinking of it in that way was clearly influenced by how i you know the coming up um in the household and understanding like these great jazz musicians were making music at the highest level, but were not able to, you know, control what they were doing. And, um, you know, anyway, it just was something that I felt like I, I just learned some more than I was aware of. And that was the fuel that I took to go out and reach out to people that em embrace these ideas, you know, particularly uh, Chris Stein and Debbie from the group Blondie, which was the biggest pop group in the world at that time. And they were open to this. And then I met other people in bands, David Byrne from the Talking Heads. Then I ran into a young brother, same age, also from Brooklyn, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who was like me, like had a similar instinct that there's some people that will listen to the, these ideas we have and will kind of, um, you know, kind of show some love. And that did happen. And that what created the friendship between us on our quest to kind of find a way in as artists, as cultural um, influences, if you will. And then, um, and so it, and so it began, uh, you know, you know, Chris and Debbie from, from Blondie, they were patrons of our work. They commissioned us to do sets on music videos, you know, the music video for the song Rapture, Jean-Michel, I mean, Flash, I, I had met Flash and those guys at the time and invited him to come and and be a part of the video. He didn't really believe I knew Blondie in them. So Jean-Michel was there and, and along with all everybody else in that video were just local um, people that were part of the scene. And Jean-Michel is at the turntables, as <laughs> Debbie says, Fat Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. And then Lee Quinones and I are in the back spray painting yeah. murals on the walls and stuff. So, so so Fab, you know, just I want to get to your film, and uh, we're getting short on time, but I, I do want to get to the movie. But before I do, because this is this is a moment that you know captures a time for me. You know, I again on the Upper West Side, I worked in my dad's spot, uh, the cellar. Oh, His clientele on. was exclusively. Cellar, I have to I have to say, came um, in the cellar early on. Um, a brother named Roy Cormier that I was tight with. 
came to sell it the upper west. This is as I'm uh, just about to step into the Yorm TV raps, the, as right. opposed to just being totally downtown. And I came to sell it was a cool, sexy spot. And that, Raul was in the, he was working at, at, at a rec, I think at Quest maybe at the time. He had Keith Washington. Raul Keith Washington. had time, Keith Washington. Yeah, we were yeah. all in there together. That was a brand new scene for me. Y'all were super fly, super dapper, super cool. <laughs> but let me, so thank you, man. I'm, I'm, it's good yes. to know that you were in that room. But yes. so I came from that downtown and discovered Nels quite by wow. accident. But the black scene for me was exclusive. It was Leviticus. It was wow. Uptown. We yeah, weren't yeah. really hitting the, the, the white clubs. You know, that really wasn't our, our thing. And yeah. then I go into Nell's and I go downstairs in the in the uh, on the dance floor and I'm, I'm grooving and all of a sudden they throw on Rock Creek Park by the Blackbirds and I'm oh like, what the? How do yeah. they know? Because white clubs just did not play that kind of music and that was the moment. Then Russell Simmons is upstairs, yeah. Naomi Campbell, Christy yeah. Turner. Yeah. Then it all meshed. But you you saw something way before that happened. But that was the moment me that it all kind of started to crystallize that the cultures were, were no meshed. that's super accurate the way you described that room but what you may not have realized the sit there was a sister who was the the main dj downstairs belinda belinda becker yeah. and i watched belinda become a dj at a club called area not long before and i remember me and jean michelle hanging around going yo who's djing and they were playing all the music because we would once we got a little clout we would try to influence you know the djs yo man throw on some james brown throw on this and they would be okay fab okay we'll do it for you because you know the club owners had them playing all that english stuff oftentimes was really not that interesting and so belinda was djing at nels definitely putting those records on yeah man it was so dope to me man yeah man so great memories man so um quickly here grass is greener the inspiration for this movie brilliant film right? i mean you. just a brilliant movie the the range of stuff the times period that you cut just crazy man inspiration for that yeah, so another thing, once again, please watch Grass is Greener if you haven't. It's on Netflix. And in the beginning of the movie, a snapshot of the world that I grew up in, a photo of my dad and his friends that would be at the house at least four or five days out of the week growing up, smoking cannabis, discussing everything going on on the planet, especially concerning us as African countries were getting their liberation and the the struggles and the fights to kind of get an equal you know piece of the pie if you will um those things were all definitely going down so once again my dad never smoking cannabis and when the idea hit me i realized from the beginnings of black music beginning in jazz in new orleans cannabis was smoked and numerous songs were made about it in the 20s and 30s the fact that cannabis brought blacks and whites together was that got racist motivated to kind of create this reefer madness lie and demonize the plant and got it criminalized in 1937 and every cutting edge genre of music the leading practitioners often were cannabis aficionados up into hip hop. When people that I exposed on your TV raps, Snoop, Method Man, Red Man, et cetera, I was like, wow, what a great way to tell this story, but also look at the criminal justice, the criminal misjustice disproportionately put on people of color. And so I thought brilliant way to tell, to make a movie 
I put a package together, pitched it, but of course I also had to look at the criminal justice nightmare. And that led me to focus on a story of a man that was given a 13 year sentence for two joints of cannabis in Louisiana, New Orleans, man by the name of Bernard Noble. And um, he was still in prison during the time of making the movie, um, interviewed his mother, sisters, they broke down in tears, really shocking, emotional moment. But luckily Bernard was granted parole and we flew back to watch him and film him walk out of prison into the arms of his family. And that stayed with me as well as other things said in the movie that motivated me. I see this is a growing multi-billion dollar business. I wanna be a part of that, but I also wanna get the word out and, and be able to message effectively about what's going on. And that led to create something called Be Noble in the name of Bernard Noble, and then lucked up, met the people from Curalief who said, let's make a deal. Cause they wanted, this is the biggest MSO, which stands for multi-state operator, big corporate cannabis company that wanted to aggressively do something to address this horrendous issue of still, a part of why the US has the world's largest prison system is largely due to um, this nonsense war on drugs, which has just been a way to criminalize black, black and brown folks. And so it's been in since July, we've released this product. As of October, we're in a total of eight states selling a two joint pre-roll, which is our initial product, which is the same two joints that Bernard was given a 13 year sentence for, messaging on the packaging, and it's some high quality cannabis super good quality flour um, in these in these uh, pre-rolls that we're now um, selling and looking to expand in many different ways with other products available as well as other brands that will all have a cause related. So the parent company we call Revolution and our initial product, which is sort of, I find a lot of comparisons to the record game. So this is like, I'm looking at the Be Noble two joint pre-roll as our first single. The album's coming soon and more groups will be on the label. <laughs> <laughs> I love the analogy. Thank so Fab, man. man, we're at the end way too quick. Um, way too quick, but I got so it. I, I'll be, I'll be please. Go ahead. So in the eighties, my mother would take me to good restaurants as a kid, you know, Chinese places, but it was always, there were always these memorable moments. My mom in the eighties, she had taken me when I was even younger, but in the eighties, she took me to Gage and Talma. And I, and this black woman was cooking there. And this woman walked out of the kitchen and my mom had read an article that she was doing a guest residency as the head chef. This woman's name was Edna Lewis. And she came over to our table and I'll never forget speaking with her. And years later, like if you Google, she literally to me, was even though Julia Child was the French chef that we all know about on TV, Edna Lewis in a, was really that woman with American cooking. And it's just a genius. She won the James Beard Award for the cookbooks that she wrote. And that's a connection to my love of fine dining and eating great food is connected to my mom taking me to good restaurants. And Edna Lewis, if, if any of you guys are listening are, are real food aficionados, please Google Edna Lewis and see that, because you know, we were the people cooking in America's kitchens, black folks, let's be, let's be real. Um, and so Edna Lewis was one of the greatest that ever did it. No I just question, to, man, the grandmother of Southern cooking, you know, yes. Kathy Nicholson before Gage and Tolman. So 
Thank legendary you. for sure. Yeah. So, so Fab, around my way, man, the old cats would sometimes roll up on us young guys, especially if we had like a fly chick with us yeah. and say, I want to be you when I grow up. Uh, so Fab, did you want to be you when you grew up? Wow, man, you got, that's why I love your podcast. You have really good questions. I would have to say yes, because I once again realized that I am in the model of the great men that thankfully my dad hung out with. Me and Max Roach were incredibly close. Uh, he was super passionate about what I was doing in hip hop. We did some collaborations together. I was super intimidated, not really a music maker, but Max was enthralled and excited by what we were doing. And he, he would talk to me about what this was in the very beginning. He told me how big this was and how influential he felt it was. So the fact, I used to think he was just trying to in, in, ingratiate like a young, a young buck at that time, but it, Things that he said about this culture all panned out. Him and Miles Davis were very tight. And the last project Miles worked on that was released posthumously was a hip hop jazz collaboration called Doobop. He worked with Easy Mo B. Him and Max were talking. In the Quincy Troop book on Miles Davis, Miles mentions me in that book. I almost collapsed in Barnes and Noble when I was looking for Max um, in the glossary and I went to some pages just to see what Max was saying. And um, Miles was talking about Max and the Quincy Troop had asked him about hip hop and Mac and, and Miles Davis in the book says, I'm figuring it out from the young musicians on the bus and I'm checking out Fab Five Freddy. That meant he was watching my show. Quincy didn't understand. I always tease Quincy to be like, what Miles was telling you was he was watching your MTV raps because I know Max had told him. And so, yeah, man, I, I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty comfortable and the and I still got a lot of work to do. But yeah, I'm in the tradition of those uh, smart, intelligent, um, um, jazz loving, um, thought leading men um, that were around in in my dad's crew, um, which they went back to the. 40s and the 50s, they used to play chess together. After World War II, they came together in a big house in Brooklyn. And they, the group of my dad's friends were loosely known as the chessmen. And the Baroness Nika de Koningswater Rothschild would come and hang out. She would park her, her Bentley outside. She was a true patron, held Monk down, held Charlie Parker down, held Archie Shep down. Because, you know, Cats wasn't able to gig essentially. And so these were some of the stories that I heard growing up. And these created vivid images in my mind that I was like, let me get out there and create some vivid images of my own. Well, Fab, you have done that, man. And in the words of, uh, I'll close on the words of Nas, who said, hip hop took it to billions. I knew we would. And Fab, you know, it's, I think, I don't think it's possible to overstate you know, the contribution that you made to taking, you know, this culture and this music to uh, to billions. So Fab, all eyes is still on you, my brother. Thank you so much, man, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. I'm still a big Nas fan. And by the way, I directed one of the first music videos off his first album, One Love. I directed that. And he's, he's, he's just sheer brilliance and he's still at it. Um, he could really put them words together. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that video and that that particular track is unbelievable, man. 
Oh man, it's been a blessing to work with yeah. people like him. And, and you know, his dad is a jazz musician, Olu Dara. Mm -hmm. And I saw in Nas a similar sensibility that I had because he, his dad, you know, was that jazz cat. His dad lived near me in Harlem in the early 2000s when I moved up there. We would kick it on a regular. He moved out long since gone. But when I, as the more I've got to understand about Nas, when I saw the documentary and the books his father put in front of him, you know, Ivan Van Sertema and, you know, Dr. Ben and just smart people thinking about what really, how this all really went down. I was like, man, Nas, we got a lot in common. So yeah, man, yeah. thank you so much, Brad. Really great to be here with you, man. I, I enjoy the podcast and I will continue to tune in. Yeah, brother, thank you so much, Fab. I hope to see you soon, man, be well on the table i'm picking the check up on this one my brother <laughs> thanks brad the pleasure right, baby peace. peace fantastic conversation with fab five freddy and i am now moving over to my dear friend ambassador shabazz how we move how you living what you thinking what you feeling <laughs> digesting you know um he's uh definitely genius unplugged this was a conversation i could have heard on and i could have gone on and on because first of all his enthusiasm you know when you have conversation character you know culture insight and your own enthusiasm i mean that's the currency of engagement right just watching someone live their life to the fullest and every iota and not lazily. I mean, like really pursuing all unique aspects of music and travel and film, not characteristic to how people typecast or presume us. And just, just brilliant, just brilliant. For me, it was like an elixir. You know, I, I love a journeyman, you know, um, where kind of the thought process is like unbound and has dare to it. You know, um, loved it. Just love listening student. to him. A student. All day, right? You know, um, all day, which for me is the fascination because that means it's not going to stay the same, but there's always going to be a trajectory of continuum, a cycle of continuum. And then when you get to be, you know, a couple of generations, not generations, decades later to now, of course it has all these nuances of color and, and, and experiences that we can benefit from just listening that 40 minutes or you know time passed i listened to his enthusiasm and it made me want to hear more based on that um intrigue that he had not only in gathering the information but sharing the information mm -hmm. you know um we need to have some kind of a getaway with all of these thought leaders and and people that we've gathered on the corner table talk podcast because it's reminiscent to what many of us grew up with. He talked about being, you know, nearby his father and, and the intellectual hipsters and bebop and music and language. His not only just his godfather, but just his fancy and intrigue with Paul Robeson. I mean, it's endless. You know, are these names that the generation now can even call upon? You know, we must connect those um Dots. It makes me think of uh, back in the 60s when my father would be at Louis Michaud's bookstore on 125th Street and Adam Clayton Powell, 7th Avenue at the time. And Louis Michaud 
was one of those persons that if you walked in there, you weren't coming out the same because he had floor to ceiling information, books, posters, paintings. And my father would go there after work and I would um, be with him. And I found myself always canvassing. There wasn't one thing to look at. And it was called the World History Book Outlet um, on um, with referencing 2 billion um, Africans and non-white people across the globe. So when we now think it's a hip term to say people of color or BIPOC, you want to say there are people talking about this a long time ago just to feature the wealth, the depth of information. And people would gather at Michaud's bookstore and uh, food would come. My father would be, the meals would come. Whoever was cooking or pulling something together next door, that was the kind of potluck spot you know, of information, culture, cuisine. They knew exactly what your order would be. My father didn't eat pork, so they knew what to bring him, you know. But for me on the ride home, based on the depth of conversations that would be circulating in that room with like Du Bois, Du Bois not for me, Du Bois for my father. But for me, when I was in there, it included James Baldwin, it included John Henry Clark, whom others, studied under or around later. But for me, it was part of that gentleman's circle of intrigue, fascination and moving the pendulum of social culture. And um, on the ride home, my dad could peep what seemed to stand out for me. And we would continue a conversation all the way to Queens. I lived in Queens. We lived in Queens at the time. And um, I think about it and my heart just beats listening to Mr. Brothwaite as a gatherer of information and now using the cross mediums that he's um, associated to, that he's skilled and um, connected to and doing, offering us a tapestry of this gathered anthology one way or the other. I could talk to him again and again. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, the, the gaps that I think of that, don't have a lot of ink, we'll say. You know, there there were periods yeah. that weren't written about, weren't, you know, discussed so broadly. So unless you were in those rooms, gathered with those people and, you know, were, were included in those conversations, you might not have knowledge that those conversations were happening. So when you hear someone like Fab talk about listening to his dad and, and someone like Max Roach or you with your dad and the conversations that were had in those spaces, a lot of the, none of that is documented. None of that do we often read about in places so that we can make connections to the history that way. So it's so just really reaffirming when you hear these stories and you say, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And, and this is what I was doing. And I remember how I, you know, that connected to the things that I was feeling. And it's, it's all relevant to you in a, in a very personal way. It's all, it's quite relevant. And it's also why, you know, you and I talk a, a lot about artistic license and what we do with it. And artistic license can be, is fine if you're doing a composite of reality. But when you are throwing in something from a contemporary lens that has no connector dot, or people say those people back then were complex, it's only complex if you don't understand what was going on. Once you understand what's going on, the thread seems natural. It seems significant. As a matter of fact, you might find alignment in some of those things if we were to just do the homework. And what we know is so much more is documented one way or the other that we can actually do that work. And if you could speak to a contemporary access 
um, artisan like Fab Five Freddy. I need to go onto Netflix. I didn't know about the the documentary. Grass is greener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the grass mm-hmm. is greener, and to follow more of the persons who were actually there, there, not just the ones talking about it, because we need it. We're going to lose that generation in a minute. Um, and I may be quoting myself on the corner table talk, but my godfather, who was Alex Haley, said that every time an elder passes, it's like a library has burned down. Mm. That means even the people in and around you, they don't have to be famous or notable. They don't have to have accomplished all of the things that makes them an influencer. But within the world around you, there's a story being told and you should chronicle it because when you connect the dots and realize that you're a part of it all the while, um, I think that we would not have to be redirected as we feel. We wouldn't, feel, I mean, literally, this is 1930s that, that Oscar Michaud had this bookstore and they were talking about reparations then, right? This is not new upstart. So now we ask ourselves if they were talking about it then, why are we here now, right? What are the efforts then? What disrupted those efforts? And what's our role? It's not up to anyone else to provide value to who we are, whomever we are in life. It's really our own respective responsibility to gather with our colleagues, friends, loved ones, families, like-minded people to put these dots together. I mean, go online and just put up Lewis, L. E-U-I-S-H, um, Michaud, is spelled like M-I-C-H-A-U-X, bookstore. <laughs> and people thought he was an eccentric because he was filled with endless information. It was one of the stops for my dad and others was the gathering spot. You know, it's it's like the the joint, you know, that people need to have and go through just for that injection of truth and affirmation of self and journey and root, um, significance, not waiting for someone else to define it, but it's already there. A lot of great stuff today. Anything uh, on your radar, anything you're looking at? uh... Yes, a whole lot of things I'm looking at. Um, Since we ran over time, I would imagine maybe next time I'll talk about the sisters who, the nine sisters who traveled to um, Morocco for their respite um, in Marrakesh. And I've gotten to hear what an amazing transformation that was for them. And I'd like to attach, when we speak about it in length next time, um, a real link that we can make sure people patronize and support international uh, resorts and restaurants by people of color, people of uh-huh. of the diaspora. Well, coming next time on How We Move, a little tease from the ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time. I mean, just yeah. because today, you know, I had notes for today, but mm-hmm. I was really just moved by listening to Fab Five Freddy. And I think that those from the hip hop generation, which is a little after me, but this bridges that gap because he's now a wisdom conveyor. He is sharing and imparting the details. And um, how we move in this case is based on the information. How, you know, the question is how he moved. I'm I'm trying to follow him around a little bit right now. I want to check out that Ponte Bistro in Harlem I hadn't heard about. 
So I started taking notes on stuff. That's why I was going a whole <laughs> lot of places because his fascination when he spoke about these restaurants. Yeah. You could taste the palate as he right. referenced it, right? He was in 3D. Everything he said was like in 3D, which was just yeah. magnificent. And so when someone is moving with that much um, adrenaline for things that they enjoy, and then they want to wrap it and make sure that you have access to it, what could be more significant right now? Oh, I know. This is thirst for knowledge, you know, just really, really taken by that. Well, Ambassador, it's uh, always a pleasure. Never long enough, but uh, it keeps me looking forward to the next time. Yes, indeed. How we move. How we move. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.